Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This episode is a really interesting conversation with one of my all-time favorite design writers, Justin McGurk. Justin is currently the chief curator at the Design Museum in London, where he staged some really fascinating exhibitions like the recent shows Fear and Love, Reactions to a Complex World, and California Designing Freedom. But before that, he was a design critic or a design writer where he wrote about design for The Guardian. He was the director of Strelka Press and the editor of Icon Magazine. He also teaches in the design curating and writing program at the Design Academy Eindhoven and published Radical Cities, a book about uh, the emerging architecture of Latin America. In this episode, Justin and I talk about his background and how he started writing about design and his move from writing to curating, especially how those two activities are different ways to work with ideas. We also talk about modes of criticism and design sometimes troubled relationship with problem solving. I'm a big fan of Justin's work and writing and just find the way he writes about design so refreshing and probing and I find myself always wishing that he was writing more. So I was really excited for this one and was so glad to get the chance to talk to him and think that you'll enjoy it too. So here is my conversation with Justin McGurk. Like I just said, I've been following you and your work for for a couple years now, uh, but I don't actually know much about your background or how you got into all of this. And something that's always interesting to me when I talk to people who are uh, critics or curators in the design field is uh, what interest came first for them? Was it design or was it writing and, and criticism? That's a good question. <laughs> um, I have what I consider to be a fairly conventional way into this discipline. Okay. Which is that I studied art history. Mm, okay. Um, which is, you know, traditionally would, would have been the way in, mm-hmm. actually. I mean, I think traditionally there, were, there was less of the kind of, uh, the kind of character who studied design or architecture and then decided to become a writer. I mean, right. if you were going to do that, you probably came out of an art history background. That's certainly the case for people like Rainer Bannon, mm-hmm. who studied and taught art history and then architecture history. Um, so I did that. And um, actually, you know, as a, as a teenager, I, I wanted to be an artist, but mm. so was pretty good at writing. And I, I tried going to art college. Uh, I did, did study painting for a year, but did not want to miss out on an academic degree. And uh-huh. um, and ended up doing an, a master's in art history. And I suppose it was, you know, the shift happened in my first couple of years after graduating when I was, you know, working in galleries at, at kind of entry level and, and um, even museums at kind of entry level. And, uh, you know, I wasn't really feeling the curatorial vibe, actually, because mm. a lot a lot of my, you know, one just assumes it actually took me a while. To, it took a while for it to occur to me that I could make a living writing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In fact, that was a delusion, of course. But uh, <laughs> the, the the initial goal was to get a job at a gallery or a museum, which is what my colleagues oh, would. Okay. Um, 
And it's, it's, I suppose it's ironic or it's the circle of life that 20 years later I now find myself in a museum having originally rejected the idea. Right. Because um, in my first forays in, in museum work, I, I thought, you know, curating is going to be way too uh, administrative and logistical for me. I, I guess because when you, when you come in at the entry level, it can be, you know, if you're assisting people, mm-hmm. that kind of work can, you know, if you're not a committed curator, could put you off. Yeah. Um, I got a job at the Architectural Association as a junior editor in 1999. Um, And that was when I started, and that's when I realized, I'd always been interested in architecture, even since I was a kid, but that's when it really kind of solidified in my mind that Mm -hmm. something I wanted to spend more time doing. Um, And, you know, to make a long story short, I mean, I, I did go off and live in New York for a while and worked in publishing, and but okay. um, eventually got into magazines and started writing properly. I mean, started really being a journalist um, in the early 2000s and then was part of a, a group of um, critics, young critics at the time who set up Icon Magazine right. and um, worked there as an as an editor and a writer for um, several years, and ended up becoming the the editor of the magazine for um, a few years, and then and then kind of had I, I guess what you would uh, call journalism fatigue, uh-huh. and decided that I, I didn't want to just be constantly producing another issue issue of the magazine and just yet another article, and right. I wanted to, I wanted to do something longer and deeper and uh, book book like. And that's when I started doing my my book on Latin American cities. Okay. Um, meanwhile, I was still uh, a practicing critic and journalist. I was um, the design critic at The Guardian mm-hmm. for a few years. Um, and then I suppose, you know, I started to, de- to develop what we would describe as a more fluid or kind of a portfolio career. Mm. And, I curated an exhibition or an, ins- an installation really at the Venice Biennale in 2012 related to my research on the Latin America book. It was the Torre David exhibition. Right. Um, that made something of a big noise. And then, you know, gradually, it was really from there that curating started to open up as another option. Okay. Um, and at the same time, I mean, 2012 was kind of a crazy year for me. I mean, I, I was working on the book. I was working on the show in Venice. I was working on... It was also the year I launched uh, Stroker Press. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Which, um, the, the small kind of digital publishing house that yeah. was publishing the work of um, architecture and design critics, um, some of whom no doubt you've interviewed. Yeah. Yeah. I love what they're doing over there, actually. Um. And that was another interesting experiment in um, in architecture and design writing and publishing. Um, but I don't know. Maybe that I, I feel like that's <laughs> that's my background. Yeah. Uh, before we bring it right up to the present. <laughs> yeah, um, I have I have a couple. I have a couple. If it's okay. Just um, question, which was about which came first? Yeah. The writing, writing or design, and I suppose the answer to that question, the very long-winded answer to that question <laughs> is writing. Yeah. Right. So, well, so that, that actually kind of leads nicely into to, uh, my, uh, my other question. I want to talk about curating in a little bit, but I'm interested 
I, I'm kind of curious about this question is going to sound overly simplified. And so I apologize, but was there a moment when y you felt like you could call yourself a design critic or where did the, you know, I know you mentioned that you always were interested in architecture, but where did that switch from, you know, spending years studying art history to moving into something that was more design focused? Well, it happened when I started working at the AA okay. because I was just, you know, I was editing uh, little magazines and books about architecture. And that's when I really started to um, to segue from one world into the other. OK. Um, and and then there was another segue, really. I mean, it wasn't I mean, it's not a shift from architecture to design, but I added design to my portfolio right. gradually while I was at Icon magazine. Um, I think all of us who started that magazine had come out of architecture actually. Okay. Um, but felt that there was a lot to be said about design that wasn't being said at the time, or mm -hmm. maybe there was a kind of approach to writing about design that we wanted to try that felt like it needed to be done. Yeah, I mean, that that sets up a bunch of wh why I really like you and your work, actually, um, because I think that you, you do, your writing about design was always kind of very different than a lot of the other design writing that I was, when I discovered you, it seemed like this big revelation of that there are other ways to talk about these things. And one of my frustrations um, in kind of the design discourse, especially the graphic design discourse. And, and again, this is an over generalization is that it often focuses on kind of a surface level critique. It's looking at typography and colors and, uh, companies redesigning their logos and, and often doesn't ask kind of deeper questions about why these things exist or why these changes were made etc. Uh, and that's something I always liked about your writing is I felt like you uh, were kind of talking about those things in that way. And the piece that I'm thinking of, uh, as I'm talking about this is your piece, um, I think it was called Honeywell, I'm home, uh, you know, essentially about the internet of things. Um, and so I'm yeah. curious, kind of how how that, that way of thinking about design, or that there was, there were these other ways to talk about design. Um, you know, where did that come from? Or how did that start to become your mode of looking at the world, I guess? Well, I think it came from a broad cultural frame of reference. Okay. Um, I certainly, I should add, don't think I'm unique in that quality. Mm -hmm. I think, yeah. you know, there are, you know, I, I would say there are, you know, plenty of, um, design critics and writers who would look beyond the surface. Um, but and I, I think the interesting thing about writing both about architecture and design is that um, that ability to engage with um, society, mm -hmm. uh, with notions of the public. Um, I don't know. And I, I think probably the art historical dimension helps to some degree as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, because one's all, somehow in art history, one is always allying the artwork to the surrounding cultural context. Right. 
what was happening when this painting was being made. Yeah. Uh, and so that's always what I've wanted to do is to try and in reading the object, what we're really trying to do, I guess, is read society or read right. the, the particular cultural, um, you know, direction of movement that that object. Yeah. I mean, so that's, I, I guess this is a good place to kind of talk about what you're doing now, actually, because I, I, I was hearing your background now, I'm less surprised, but when, when you took the job of, of curator at the design museum, that seemed like a big shift from, from what you were doing before now kind of putting it in context, it makes a lot more sense. So I, I guess kind of briefly, what, what were you looking for in, in kind of moving away from strictly writing or criticism into a position like you have now? And then the, the larger question that I have is how you think about your role as a curator to bring together objects like this to look at society. How is that different than, you know, writing an essay, I guess? You know, you know what I mean? That was kind of a weird way to phrase that. No, I, I know exactly okay. exactly what you mean. And um, the first thing to say is that it was a big shift. Okay. Um, it was a big shift. It was a bigger shift than I thought. Mm. Um, I mean, it was very, you know, it's not hard to make a compelling case about why someone with my background would be an interesting person to have at a museum like the Design Museum, mm -hmm. um, if one makes the case that it's all about ideas. Mm. Um, if one were to make the case that it's about the craft of curating, <laughs> then I right. probably wouldn't have been the right person right. to. <laughs> but, but, you know, for me, it was it was the idea that the museum could be a forum of ideas, and those ideas didn't all have to manifest themselves as exhibitions. Mm -hmm. That actually, public program could um, and, and publishing and exhibitions could all contribute as they do at other museums to to the cultural statements being made mm -hmm. uh, so in a way you know i offered myself up as a person who um, knows the landscape and um likes to ex like, likes to take on relevant topics and um contribute to a discussion of ideas you know I, my pitch was that the design museum should be um the center of the global debate around design mm -hmm. um i like that but, but of course you know, it was a big shift, and um, it was a big shift. It was a big learning curve for me in terms of the craftsmanship of making exhibitions, which right. has been, I must say, tr a very fun learning curve for me. I mean, tr tremendously fun to move from writing on paper to writing in space and right. talking to people through objects and conceiving of the argument through objects. Yeah. I mean, there are there are papers or essays that I've written with arguments that work on paper that probably wouldn't work mm. in objects. Mm -hmm. um, and you know that you mentioned the smart home. Uh, yeah. Essay. That would be that's much stronger as an essay than it is as an exhibition. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Um, I know that because I'm also I'm thinking about an exhibition now about the home the idea of the home mm. and my first draft of that exhibition as an idea was much better as an idea than it was as an exhibition and I, you know i'm it was it was in setting out in trying to set out my my notion of 
this idea that our our sense of what home means is changing because of things like you know nomadic behavior or smart home technology or airbnb Mm, or uh, the sense that privacy is is diminishing our you know in in our notion of home all of these things are fascinating and they are all true um but if you try and spell those out in objects it's actually much harder than to write a book well so so how I, this is something this is exactly kind of what I wanted to to talk to you about is this idea of curating as a type of critical activity or taking a position around a set of ideas and then you know kind of finding objects that support them in a way and um so I I, I have two questions um and I'll I'll, I'll be up front that I I have not been to the design museum um, so I've been admiring it from afar, but I'm thinking of the fear and love exhibition, um, as something that seems related to what you're talking about, where that very clearly had a point of view, um, yeah. that you were trying to, to, uh, communicate. And so my, my two questions are, and, and you can speak about that exhibition specifically or more generally, uh, whichever you want, um, but I'm kind of interested in the audience for for the museum and what types of people come through and how you think about communicating these ideas to that audience. You know, is it mostly people who are fairly design literate? Um, and then how much of your, your view or your ideas around this um, are coming across? You know, how much of this is kind of... Uh, you know, I, I don't know, opinion, not, not opinion based, but, um, you know, taking a critical stance. Well, excellent questions. I mean, we had 800,000 people come oh, wow. through the museum in the first year. And the honest answer is, we don't know who they are. Um, you know, we're still, we're still doing surveys and things trying to figure out who our audience is, because it's a slightly, it's certainly a bigger audience than, we used to have in the old building mm-hmm. and that means it's a different audience and we're trying to figure out who it is um i must say that those kind of conversations about who were who exactly the audience is are coming into play much more now mm-hmm. than they did when i came up with the idea for fear and love which was a, an exhibition where actually we gave ourselves license to not be to not have to be too popular. We did say when we opened the museum, we wanted to open with a critical position statement. And we, you know, we just didn't, we didn't care too much about the size of that audience for that exhibition because it was much more important to us to put a stake in the ground. Oh, interesting. And the stake in the ground was not, was to celebrate design, but also complicate it. <laughs> yeah, to, I love to, that challenge people's preconceptions about what they might find in a design museum that if they were going to that you know they were not going to come and see an exhibition of chairs right but actually they would come and see an exhibition about the relevance of design to the way the world is changing and so fear and love was quite a complex portrait of design's role in a rapidly changing world, and one where we wanted to kind of foreground 
issues and context much more than objects. So in going down the installation route and inviting 11 architects and designers to come to the museum and make installations, I very explicitly said to them, this is not about putting objects on a plinth. Mm-hmm. Okay, this is about the context in which you work. And the reason why I think that's important is because, um, you know, design engages with really complex issues. Yeah. And any object is, has, is part of a kind of complex web of side effects, um, you know, histories, provenances, mm-hmm. you know, if you wanted to talk in kind of sustainability terms, every object is a story about where that, where those materials came from, where they're going to go, how they, you know, how they are spread across the world. Um, it's quite a complex picture. And I, I just wanted to dwell on that for a moment. <laughs> yeah. Um, and also I wanted to dwell, I, I wanted to present design as some, as, as a discipline where the stakes are high. Yeah. You know, I wanted to challenge the idea that of design as being style. Right. And so had installations about, um, obviously, uh, well, I mean, this is where the fear comes into the title. <laughs> yeah. The exhibition about automation, um, you know, that clearly there's a societal fear of automation at this moment. Um, there was, there were exhibits about, um, online dating platforms and mm-hmm. how they change people's mm-hmm. behavior about recycling textiles, about death, um, about food. Um, so, you know, big complex issues and, um, presented in installation forms. So not as a, as a kind of discrete object, but in a more theatrical way, in a more artistic way, actually. Right. I mean, that, you know, I, I have like five different things I want to ask you now based on, uh, based on that. Uh, I had read an interview that, that you had done. I think it was about Fear and Love where you, where you said something to the effect that um, design, design has a more complicated uh, relationship to the world than than designers like to to believe sometimes or something. I'm misquoting you a little bit, but you, you said something like that, and I'm I'm sorry to mm-hmm. kind of quote back. Uh, well, to... It sounds roughly like something I would say. Okay, okay, good. Um, and I think that's something that's that's really interesting in that design is often. Um, seen as this kind of good thing or or you know especially in in graphic design education it's presented as a type of problem solving um but it's not i i don't mean to be too negative or to take this down a dark road but i think that's what was really interesting about your your exhibition or you know what i what i was able to see of the exhibition is that you kind of attempted to articulate these that complicated relationship that you're talking about. Um, and it's true. I mean, you know, just to give you a, I mean, I, I, I do believe, you know, I do believe that design has the potential to quote unquote, make the world a better place. <laughs> yeah. Um, don't get me wrong. I'm not cynical about design, but I do think it's complicated because, um, you know, everything you put into the world has consequences and side effects, mm-hmm. even when you're solving a problem again, quote, unquote, mm-hmm. um, very, and, and sometimes we don't even know what the consequences of those things are until much later. <laughs> right. so a, a good example would be, um, 
you know, plastic in the oceans. Right. Okay. So my, my big we're doomed moment was in November last year when it emerged that um, scientists had discovered plastic in the most minute form of sea life 11 kilometers deep. Right. At that moment, I thought, okay, this is not going to be an easy one to solve. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, and then you think, how did we get there? And obviously, we know that we've let plastic as a disposable uh, material run riot in our convenience culture. And designers are in their own small way complicit in that because they're, they're good at designing very convenient, efficient, seductive forms of packaging. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's, that's their job when that's the brief. Um, it's not necessarily, a, it's not designer's fault that, you know, that way of life became completely, became globalized and completely, you know, unsustainable. Yeah. yeah. Um, and then along comes uh, a, ver- a very well-meaning and right-thinking company like Patagonia and says, well, let's turn uh, plastic bottles, let's recycle plastic bottles into uh, fleeces. And you th- everybody says, what a brilliant idea. And then 20 years later, or I don't know, 15 years later, they discover that plastic microfibers are being sucked through our washing machines <laughs> and the fleeces into the ocean, right. and they're consumed by, you know, microorganisms and that's when you think design is complicated yeah i i have a very uh i'm asking this question completely almost not as a as a interviewer anymore completely as a selfish question uh because what you're saying is completely resonating with with the types of conversations that i have with people on the podcast with my students with my friends who are designers um and i i I'm trying to think of the best way to to articulate this, but I'm very much interested in the relationship between the critic and the designer or between criticism and, and theory and actual practice. And I, I'm from, from the critical side, from the point of view of a critic, I, I, you know, agree with you a hundred percent. And these are all the things that I'm talking about. But then when I switch to my designer side, and, you know, making seductive packaging or figuring out new ways to reuse things, it almost becomes paralyzing in a sense, because it's like, well, what, what is the role of the designer anymore? You know, because all of this stuff is just, you know, it can almost feel overwhelming that all of this stuff is just doing more harm than good. Um, And I I sympathize. Yeah. And so, (laughs) okay, good. I'm curious if you have any thoughts, I'm not, I'm not asking for a, for a, you know, clear answer here, but how, how a designer, a practicing designer who is working at a, at a, a place, for example, where they have to make packaging for, for something, how they can kind of move through that world while also being critical, skeptical, um, you know, but also making a living. I think, I have two answers to that question. Okay. One a little bit more oblique, but I would say designers can influence those conversations. Mm-hmm. They can, it is within the designer's gift to propose, you know, more sustainable forms of packaging than, than was listed on the brief, mm-hmm. for example, um, or more sustainable forms of production or printing, or, you know, if someone comes to you and says, I want this, 
X and Y, and you think it's unhealthy, and you propose an equally sexy version, which is, you know, mm-hmm. W and R. Yeah. That, that's, that's in your gift. It's in your gift to make the suggestion anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, the more complex response is that it depends what kind of critic I would be. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, there are different kinds of critics. There are the critics who are kind of like uh, industry watchdogs. Right. And who, you know, are naming and shaming people who are doing environmental damage or whatever. And then there's also criticism as a form of um, I don't know, how can I put it? There's criticism as cultural meaning. Right. right? Yeah, yeah. As as semiotics or, you know, there's there's Roland Barthes who's going to write an essay about um, you know, Italian packaging or, or, mm-hmm. or a poster mm-hmm. for Italian products and what what the lang- the visual language of that uh, poster symbolizes or signifies. And, and then there's and there's criticism about the effects of those things in the world. You know, right. They're not yeah. also the same thing. So I don't know. I mean, it just feels, I suppose, the, the cultural meaning aspect never goes away. Um, if you're a good critic, that, that is your job. It's, uh, for me, uh, being a critic is about finding cultural meaning, mm-hmm. uh, it, trying to understand what an object says about the culture and society that produces it. I, I, uh, then, you know, somehow it feels more important than ever to talk about the side effects as well. I, I'm curious how I, I, I kind of want to shift a little bit, but keep this thread going because you also teach and, and you're you're working with with students who are training to become critics or, or you know curators and do this kind of work. How do you kind of how do you think about kind of teaching that or or you know presenting students with all these different ways that you can be a critic or these different positions that that a critic can take well it's true i mean i i teach um less now than i used to but i teach at um, the design academy eindhoven um -hmm. design uh, curating and writing masters and i think the best way to do that is to present them with different forms of criticism Mm -hmm. um you know to to look at the different the the way different critics have approached their field um i mean it's interesting and, and you know there are there are historical shifts i mean if you, if you think about the way that Raina bannham wrote about design not so much architecture but design mm-hmm. um i would say that it's difficult to write like that about design these days in some respect because for him you know in the 1960s you could still point to design yeah as kind of to some degree socially liberating yeah it's the sense that you know he would say that the washing machine liberated his mother from having to boil clothes in a copper pot <laughs> right so, so um you know there's this sense that all mod cons in the home meant free time and that meant leisure time mm-hmm. um oh, that's was was quite liberating 
Yeah. It's difficult to make the same case now for consumer products. And especially if you look at the new products coming into the home, um, that it's not so much about efficiency anymore or uh, really it's just about overloaded functionality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, data collection. <laughs> so it's like, <laughs> right. Well, I think that, I mean, that's, it's interesting because it kind of ties back to what we were talking about earlier about the kind of position you took at the design museum and wanting this to be this kind of place to, to deconstruct people's notions of design. And I think this applies to teaching design criticism or design writing. Also, I talk with you know, the other faculty that I work with about how fast the design industry is changing and that even our definitions of design are changing, that it's so hard to teach students, especially students, you know, who are sometimes coming in with really concrete examples of design being logos and books and websites to others who are thinking more systematically, that I can't imagine teaching people how to talk about this stuff or pick apart this stuff when design's definition is completely expanding. I'm thinking of, of uh, Mark Wigley and Beatrix Colomina, Are We Human? That, you know, the whole world is encrusted with a, a geological layer of design. Is that a, a challenge that you, you find? Yes. <laughs> um, Do you know what I, you know what I, I mean? I, I think, I think the interesting thing about the Wigley and Colomina position is that it's easier to talk about design in those terms if you're not actually in the design world, mm. which they are slightly outside of. Yeah. Um, so design, I think the challenge is design as a word. Right. Uh, particularly in English, where it has a, a kind of infinite elasticity, you know, it because we use it in such a, we use it in a, in a, a kind of more prolific way than other languages, yeah. than, than, not, than some other languages, where they have more specific definitions of what design means. Um, you know, we can literally design anything, you know, as Hal Foster once said, from genes, as in denim, to genes. Right, as yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You know, <laughs> as human cells or whatever. Right. Um, and that can be, that can be confusing. I mean, I, I mean, to some degree, though, it is true that the industry has expanded, um, and the sense of what design is has also expanded. And, and I mean, you just have to think about something like software, and let alone, you know, service design. Um, and you start to realize that every potential experience we have can be designed in some way. Mm -hmm. uh, so much of the way we negotiate the world now is through interfaces and screens right. all of those experiences have been designed um you walk into a supermarket and or, or you walk into a bank and um if it's a good bank the way you the way you encounter that space or the the, the hierarchy of um of employees that you're going to encounter on your journey to that till has all been designed in some way um you know through yeah. some experience design and then it, it, you're right it becomes it becomes uh bewildering but also amazing I mean, yeah, <laughs> right the, 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 the sometimes you think that design really does have this phenomenal influence on the world right uh, most of the time you know 
a lot of this stuff is happening by accident or in spite of design. Right, right. This leads in really nicely to, to a question that I ask everybody, and it kind of leads into the final part of the the conversation. But I'm, I'm really curious about what you think are the issues, the topics, subjects that designers should be talking more about and thinking about in their practice, but then also the these issues that the you know critics and writers who are looking at this stuff what are the things we should be thinking about right now i find that such a hard question <laughs> i know i, I know it's in, why it's because i i have a particularly broad spectrum of interests okay um, i mean i write about um cities architecture product design yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, and 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 also about design in a more kind of nebulous sense. Um, I mean, I I do think that design's relation to the planet and this emergent term Anthropocene is unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea that we are gradually encrusting the next layer of the Earth with the byproducts of our lifestyles yeah. is something that we need to think much more deeply about and um i never feel more depressed about design as a discipline than when i walk through an airport or um <laughs> yeah some, some shopping malls not all but some and you just look at the proliferation of stuff yeah and you think we're doomed <laughs> yeah <laughs> on the other hand you know when people say when people make the rather simplistic argument, oh, not another chair, mm-hmm. I think, well, you know, why not another chair? I mean, you know, you, you don't turn the tap of culture off. You know, there are always new forms, uh, new ways right. of making new materials, new you know, manufacturing processes. You know, it's not like we need more chairs. I mean, maybe, if, you know, if we stockpile them, you know, we have enough to sit on. But then if we stockpile all our books, we have enough to read for the rest of our lives. You know, you don't turn culture off. Right. I love uh, that. So I, I do find it, you know, without having some kind of, you know, Stalinist style central committee of product <laughs> approval, yeah. you know, the free market will do what it does. And it's, um, it's 10 million entrepreneurs trying to make a buck mm-hmm. with things that they need designers to make seductive. Right. And I, I don't see any way out of that except to find more sustainable ways of making those things in more recyclable ways. Right. Um, to be deeply boring about it, um, you know, there's like 7% of the world's gold reserves are trapped in electronics. Mm-hmm. You know, like this, yeah. there's a tremendous amount of material out there, but it's been put together in ways that's very hard to unpick. <laughs> right. You know? so right. We need to get better at that. We need to get better at not gluing electronics together and... Yeah, you know, making things in ways that are easier to to disassemble and and reuse and melt down and you know reshape. Yeah. In in an attempt to not end this on a completely we're doomed uh, note. Yeah, <laughs> I'm uh, the last question that I kind of ask everybody uh, that I talk to is I'm I'm curious who the the writers the critics if you were assembling a reading list, who are the people that have really influenced you or the people you return to again and again or or have kind of influenced how you think about all of these things? If we were kind of putting a reading list together of the people that, 
you know, people should read. Oh my god. <laughs> I know, I know. <laughs> That's hard. I know. Um God, whoever I list now, I'm gonna I'm going to kind of kick myself <laughs> later for not mentioning the people I really care about. You would not be surprised how many people say that exact same thing when I ask that question. I should I you would think by now I would know to warn people uh before I talk to them. Well, I'm vaguely you know, there are a lot of traditionally there are a lot of bees on my list. So Rainer Bannon yeah. was tremendously influential to me, as was Roland Barthes. Mm-hmm. Um, who, I mean, it depends on the topic, really. I mean, you know, when it comes to certainly that that's when it comes to my approach to writing about products. Mm-hmm. Um, but then people like Lefebvre were influential oh, yeah. when it comes to writing about the city. Um, Marshall Berman. Richard Sennett. Yeah. Richard Sennett is... Oh, yeah. Actually, when I was researching, you know, rereading some of your pieces before this conversation, I reread your review of his book, The Craftsman, which was a book that I loved uh, and had forgotten that you had written about it. I mean, that was only a small thing, but I've I've just finished, or I'm kind of about to finish um, a longer piece about a new book he's doing about the city, Mm. Uh, it's something I've written for the New Yorker and uh, God yeah it's it's writing about the city is a bit like writing about design I'm like, <laughs> yeah. where do you where do you stop you know right. where do you, it's just such an endlessly vast and rich topic yeah um, I, yeah I, so I, 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 like, you know I, I, I had a, a problem with that piece where I got to 3,000 words and I was like hmm I feel like I've just started. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I know I said that last question was the last question, but you did. You just said that you're you're writing something for the New Yorker. Are you doing? Are you still doing much writing, or how how does writing kind of fit into your, or or let's say public writing fit into your work now? Well, I did take a. I did slow down. Uh, yeah. After joining the museum, I I kind of had this notion that I would continue to write, and found that actually, you know, I, I really had to had to slow down on the writing front because it it just became a distraction from the things I was meant to be thinking about. And I have written catalogue essays and things um, like okay. for Fear and Love and right. for the California show. Um, but I would like to, I, I'd like to write a little bit more. I mean, it's a little bit dangerous because, you know, it can, it can be a distraction, but I just... I just kind of need it. Yeah. Need yeah. to do it. You know, I, I really, that's why I wanted to do something a little bit longer about, about this book. I, you know, I, I have no interest in kind of short form journalism or opinion pieces, particularly. I mean, I just kind of feel these days, if I'm going to write something, I just want to write about things that I write <laughs> about. Right. Know, I don't, yeah. I'm not that interested in opinion. I, I'm, you know, I'm much more interested in, um, criticism yeah i mean i think that's great that was one of the uh, this is actually a really nice way to kind of wrap all of this up because as, as excited as i was to see you going to the design museum it it was a little bit depressing for me being on you know across the ocean that um it's harder for me to go see your work than to read it when it's online and i was i missed seeing your writing regularly so to hear that that is still something you're interested in doing and in you know, a little bit longer form or something that's uh, kind of straight criticism 
is exciting because because like I like I began, I'm a big fan of your work and, and your writing, especially and I have to get to London to see to see one of your shows. Um, and just the way that you think about all these things is uh, has been very influential to me. Um, and I think a lot of the strands and themes of this podcast have uh, come out of of your work. So I'm really glad that um, we finally got to kind of have this conversation that I got to talk to you a little bit. Um, and so thanks. Thanks for uh, for your work. And also thanks for this conversation. It was really, really great for me. Well, thank you very much for your kind comments. I enjoyed it a lot. I feel like, um, like everything else, I feel like we just started that conversation. I know, I know. <laughs> this episode was recorded on January 19th, 2018. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening.